We are continuing this morning our study of the Psalms, or summer in the Psalms, and uh, we had a slight change in our original plan. My desire this morning was to speak uh, and teach from Psalm 42, which I'll do in a few weeks, but then as we were putting the service together over the past couple of weeks, I realized I don't think I'm going to have time to do Psalm 42, so you all can take a breath. Instead, we're going to be looking at Psalm 117. So if you will turn with me there this morning. We'll get Psalm 42 again in a couple of weeks, and then I know then uh, then in a few weeks after that, uh, Ken Bush is going to be speaking on that and including it in in a broader portion of Scripture. So you will get Psalm 42, uh, just not this morning. Before we come to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. That's We don't come merely resting on our own strength and our own ability to understand, but that we would rest in the grace of God to open our hearts and our minds. Father, we do come to this portion of our service uh, as an act of worship to you. May we incline our ears to listen for your voice. For every word that you have spoken and recorded for us is intended to not only point us to you, but to bless us, guide us, and direct us. Even those words that bring correction whether they're intentionally written that way or simply because we realize that our lives are not inclined that way, they are an expression of your love for us. So I pray that as we incline our ears to hear you, to learn about you, and to orient our lives around the truth, that you would be the one who would speak the truth. And we would honor you by knowing that it is the voice of the one true God who is also our Father. We pray this to your glory and praise our benefit and joy. In the name of Christ, who is our all and all. Amen. Psalm 117. We will read it in its entirety. (laughs) Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. May the Lord give us blessing from his word. It's considered by many to be among the greatest speeches in all of history. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address is lauded really for two notable attributes. One, it's brevity. It's 271 words. And second, it's pregnancy. In other words, it's packed with poignancy. In Psalm 117, which we were forced to go to today, in a sense, because of all the other things we're celebrating today, shares both of those attributes and really exceeds it in a number of ways. We turn here in part because it is the shortest chapter in all of the Scriptures. It exceeds the Gettysburg Address with its 271 words because it only has 28 words in at least the ESV And for those of you who are reading in the original Hebrew, there's only 14 words. It's even half as long as it is in the English. And yet, despite its brevity, it is packed and it is powerful because it is God speaking on any number of subjects. One historian or one theologian from over a century ago, nearly two centuries ago, as he was studying this, recognized that this short passage, these two verses contains five significant themes of the Scriptures that all of which could be proclaimed and are worthy of consideration 
and that this passage forces us to consider. I mean, it, it is a call to the nations as it begins, praise the Lord all the nations, which really is the, the basis of, of mission. It is a summary of the gospel, God's steadfast love for us. It is a declaration or an instruction in how we are to respond to the gospel, both in terms of our praising of God and our declaration of declaring his praises among the nations. It is an explanation, or uh, of the, as the words of, of, the, uh, of, of, that, uh, of years ago, the duties of God's people. In other words, in this passage, it shows the priorities of, that we have as God's people. And it also points us to the privileges that we have as God's people. And that was the theologian who not only saw that, Martin Luther, looking at this, devoted 36 pages in his own reflections of the Psalms to these two verses because it is so packed with poignancy. Now, Psalm 117 is a summons to praise God. That part is not mistaken. I find it interesting, C.S. Lewis, though, as he was considering his own reflections on the Psalms, admitted something that many of us probably wouldn't at least say out loud. But he had a problem with Psalms such as this, and these are prevalent throughout this particular book, because he just was wondering about this God who over and over again was telling people to praise him, and then at other times allowing the other people to speak so that they could have the opportunity to tell people to praise God. He said he likened it to wondering and likened it to whether it was like a vain woman searching for compliments until as he thought about it more and he mulled over it, he realized that it was an entirely different thing, that God was revealing that which was most praiseworthy, and that we are invited in to do what all of us and all of creation were created to do, which is to praise God. Summarizing C.S. Lewis's, what he found, John Piper succinctly says, we praise what we prize. And all of the Psalms are either reflections of that or invitations to show us the infinite greatness of our God. And so the goal of our, my message this morning is simply that you and I would praise God. That's the clear objective of the text. It's what we are, are created for this morning. But one of the things that I find significant about this psalm as I began reflecting on it and thinking about it is, is this, is that the psalmist as he's writing this, as succinct as it is, it's easy just to compact everything, and, but the psalmist is not expecting us just to flip on the praise switch as if we go about our lives, sometimes that can be very complicated, sometimes can be very heavy, sometimes can be very disappointing, and other times are filling us with joy. And then we gather here together and somebody just simply says, praise. Some traditions, uh, some places in our country, they have a tradition in a wedding, and while the wedding banquet is taking place, people start clinking their glasses, which is an automatic declaration for the couple to kiss. It's easy to look at this psalm and saying, when somebody says praise, it's not like a Simon says, that you've got to do immediately what happens. God is not just expecting that we'll flip on that switch, even if we could. So the reality is our faith and our ability to praise, or at least praise that God wants to receive, doesn't happen simply because we obey the command. There needs to be an impulse. There's more behind it. Now, of course, we can all utter words of praise, and sometimes if you're like me, you find yourself doing that when we gather for worship and we sing and my heart might be elsewhere, my mind might be elsewhere, and the words on the screen 
are telling me to praise or giving me words which I, with which I can use to praise God. But that's not what God is simply asking for. He's not asking to be buttered up. He's inviting us into his presence that we might be amazed at him and to offer him praise. And so he's not saying with this, simply flip on the switch. But rather than calling us to do that, the psalmist focuses our attention on two praiseworthy attributes of God. In particular, we see his steadfast love and we see his faithfulness or, depending on the translation, truth. In the Hebrew, the first word for steadfast love is hesed, which is far more full than what our English translations mean. We uh, have an ability perhaps to experience it, but we, it's difficult to convey other than we just talk about steadfast love, which seems like it has an ending or kind of definite. And the implication is it's an inexhaustive, overwhelming kind of love that he's expressing. And then how we can have two ideas of faithfulness and truth seem to be you know, very distinct ideas. The Hebrew word is one that is very familiar to you, but it's not one that we usually put in that context. The word there is amen, or we pronounce it amen, uh, which really speaks to uh, a faithfulness to himself, to God. It's God who himself is the truth. And so both are appropriate uh, for uh, theological or for Bible scholars talk about when words are seemingly so different, but translating the same word, it's called dynamic equivalence. We benefit by saying, How do these things fit together and how are they different because we get a fuller picture and that's what's taking place here. But there are two attributes here. God's faithfulness to a particular truth that we'll see and his steadfast love, which really is the truth that he is faithful to. One is something that he pours out and the other one is a promise that he continues. Now, if we're going to understand this, it's important that we back up for just a second and think for a moment about those who would have received this in the first place that we can gain the perspective that we need to be able to benefit from the psalm and then ultimately respond in a way that God is calling us to. And so we look first and recognize that God is at work. Verse 1, which is the declaration that we are to praise the Lord, then in verse 2, so is, you know, 1 is a call, and then in verse 2 we actually see the causes of our praise. And the cause of our praise is God's faithfulness, God's love. And we consider first God's love and faithfulness to Israel because that's, this is the Hebrew hymnal. This is the song that they would have been singing, one that they would have been focused upon, not only used as a call to worship, but an actual declaration of faith and of praise of our God. If you know the story of God's faithfulness to the Hebrews, to his people, he chose a people that were really insignificant, and he made them a people by choosing one man who in himself was not of any great significance. And if you know his story, the story of Abraham, Uh, and you read it thoroughly, you realize he was no great treasure either, no great prize. We sentimentalize Abraham, uh, but he was a deeply, deeply flawed individual. But through that one man and through the family that God gave to him, he made a people to be his own, a people that he blessed, a people that he marked, a people who constantly then turned around and complained about God, ignored him, and rejected him. God in his continual love and faithfulness would provide for the people. Even at a time that they had been plunged into a period of slavery for 400 years. God, as he calls Moses then in the book of Exodus, he reminds them, I have been hearing, I'm not unaware, I heard the cries of my people and I'm going to deliver them. 
God, through a series of miracles, providing for a way for the people to be released from their captivity to Egypt, brings them through a miracle through, the, uh, through a sea, puts them in, a, in, a, in a, a situation where they now are free to receive the promises he's given them, and their response to that is to say, we liked it better where we were before. God realizing there needed to be standards, guidance, direction, calls Moses into his presence and gives him the law. Moses is gone a short period of time and finds the people when he returns, making for themselves idols that they can bow down to worship in order to forsake the God who has just delivered them. Talk about ADD, short attention spans. These people have forgotten the way that they're blessed. Now, I'm prone to forget the ways that God's have blessed me too, but I, I tend to also think of myself, you know, if last week God had allowed me to walk through the James River, that might make an impression on me. I might remember that. Except that like the people of Israel, I'm as fickle as anything else, and my response to God is not, what have you done, but what have you done for me lately? There's a picture in Exodus 34 that is interesting because God is furious with his people who have once again demonstrated that despite his love for them and grace, that they have no love for him. There is no faithfulness. The Lord, though, is telling Moses, all right, we're going to take two new tablets. We're going to write these things down again, make-up quiz, and take these things down to the people. And in describing why he's doing this to Moses, the Lord says this in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children into the third and fourth generations. He's declaring, here's who I am, the Lord. And then get his attention, the Lord, just to make sure there was no question as to who he was talking about. This is what I'm like. I'm faithful and filled with steadfast love. Does it sound familiar? It's exactly the words that the psalmist is using in 17. In one Psalm 117, he's talking about God's faithfulness. And all the people of Israel would have been able to think back about their own history, and particularly the, the, the Exodus event where they were delivered from their bondage, and then how they responded to that, and then how, God is, how did God respond to a people who had been blessed in such tremendous way, and yet they still would wander and chase after other gods. God is faithful to his own truth of his own character, his own love, and his own provision. And the people of Israel, being reminded of that, would clearly be able to declare, as the psalmist exclaims, the Lord is full of steadfast love. The Lord is faithful and true, and it never is exhausted. It never ends. We see the fulfillment of the promise of God's love and faithfulness, not only throughout the pages of the Old Testament, because over and over, if you read the pages of the Old Testament, it's just more chapters of the same story of God loving, being faithful, and pouring out love upon a people who did not warrant it. Until the apex of all history, the point of which all of the scriptures was pointing to, we also see the love of God and the faithfulness of God in Christ. 
The one who was promised through whom all forgiveness of sins. John talks about it in 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus gave himself. Romans 5 also tells us the same thing, that we see the faithfulness and love of God demonstrated in the person of Christ. Many have memorized, let me just read the, the whole thing and consider what this passage is telling us about the purpose of Christ. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, people who weren't considering God, people who didn't seem to be reflecting the characteristic of God. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A beautiful demonstration that every time we think of Christ, we think of the cross, we are reminded, we are seeing vividly lived out the love of God, the faithfulness of God to pour out his love on a people he chose to love for no other reason than he chose to love and through them demonstrated his characteristics. But also something that you and I need to consider because that's a history lesson and it's important and it sounds very churchy, but this passage is actually a declaration and it's an invitation for you and for me to also consider God's love and faithfulness to us. Not simply by inserting ourselves in here, you know, write your name in here. Actually, what the psalm is speaking Praise the Lord, all nations. Praise the Lord, all peoples. Well, since very few of us were probably have our trace our heritage back to Judaism, we are part of the all nations. And so it's an opportunity for us to realize that God is not a tribal God. He was only going to bless one people, but his intent was to use this one people in order to bless the entire nation so that all nations and all peoples, and it's an interesting phrase here, extol him all peoples. You recognize what's weird about the peoples? People's already plural. Now you add an S to it, so it's plural, plural. It's an inclusive, it's a reminder that God is inviting people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, all people, not only our ancestors, but us, all peoples are invited to praise him, not simply because you want to join the party, but because God's intention from all time is to pour out his love and his faithfulness through the declaration of Christ to invite us in, that we would experience the reality of his steadfast love and be reminded of it. And this is an invitation for us, not only to look back to Israel and what they would have understood, certainly it's an invitation to look to Christ and how he's given to us, but in all the ways in which he's poured his life out to us. When we hear this, phrase, in this call to praise God and then we're reminded because of his steadfast love, we are invited to be thinking of the ways that God has poured his love out for us. Hollywood seems to understand the importance or at least the marketability of stories where steadfast love overcomes even the most difficult of odds. At risk of losing my, having my manhood called into question, I'm going to cite The Notebook. Um, 
which is a story, and I'll go ahead and say it, it's a beautiful story, when we, at least you'll see it when I, by the time I'm done explaining my way of looking at this movie, but um, it's kind of a beautiful in a guy's way is the way I want to say that, um, of a man who so loves his wife who has gone through dementia and inability to remember the past that they have together, and so daily he's meeting and he's rereading to her their history so that she is reminded of the love that they had, so that even if it's just for a moment, she can remember and experience the love that they have had and the commitment that they've made to one another. Adam Sandler's 51st Dates, he falls in love with a girl who can't remember overnight. The light switch goes off and she just doesn't remember and thinks it's some other time. So every day he goes and tries to win her back again, pouring out love. And at the end of the movie, he creates a video to show her story and the ways that people have continued to love her so that every day she can be reminded that she is loved and it helps her gain her identity. Folks, the entire Bible is God's love letter to us to remind us that we who are like Israel, we who through our own brokenness forget or don't remember, God is over and over and over again saying, look at the ways in which I have loved you. It's not because you're necessarily deserving it, but I have loved you. I've been faithful to you. And all of the stories throughout the Old Testament are reminding us of how God has loved the unlovable. And even Paul's declares to that in the person of Christ is a screaming declaration of the love of God for people who seem to be prone to forget. And this beautiful psalm calls us to remember the love of God and the ways that he has provided for us, ultimately in Christ, and then as we look into our own lives and realize all the other provisions, which are expressions of his life, the different ways in which we recount that, God's love continues to be faithful and steadfast because he's committed to himself. The psalmist writes this, and he does begin, here's, here's what the objective is. Here's what you're really commanded to do, praise God. But he doesn't leave us to simply say, all right, now I'm going to obey this. He calls our attention to something that makes us see the reality of God's praiseworthiness. Now, it's possible that you're here this morning and you don't feel praise ready, whether you recognize God is praiseworthy or not. You may be discouraged or depressed, just sad with things. I think this passage is a reminder that one of the things that we need to do is not just turn in on ourselves and just decide whether we are, or it's not about whether we're ready but it turns our attention to God and what he has done. It's an invitation for us to meditate on the attributes of God, to fill up our minds with the knowledge and with the, uh, the reminders of God's love and faithfulness. And then respond to that. It's an invitation to participate in what God is doing in order that we would benefit from the joy of seeing other people make testimony of faith because they, they've heard it. There is a mission mandate here because it is a declaration of praise the Lord, all the nations and extol him, all peoples. And God throughout the scriptures has made it clear that his desire is that his love and faithfulness be extended to all peoples and tribes. And he doesn't allow us to be spectators because otherwise this passage would read something else. It would just simply say, there would be people from every tribe and tongue that will be praising me. But the fact that there's a command for us to declare the praises of God, it's an invitation to us because it includes all people. And it's also a command that we would do that and praise him 
in the presence of all people. But one of the things that's important for us to consider is not only are we mere spectators, we also need to realize what this is telling us about something that some of us are hesitant to do, which is evangelism or, or mission. We're excited to see a team go out, but you know, better them than me, maybe what somebody might be thinking. Or I admire that. I wish that could be me. I just don't think I could do that. We need to realize that one of the things this passage seems to be reminding us is that mission is really not the priority application of this particular passage. It is the inevitable consequence of the spillover of praise. We declare the praises of God and others hear. It calls them to join us in the worship of God. Worship is the first thing that it is calling us to, and then there is a spillover to that. One of the things that we need to remind ourselves is when we evangelize, it's not some abstract concept that we're trying to convey to people. As if there's a few principles that they need to learn, and as soon as they have them down, you know, we add them to the roles of some church. We are introducing them to a person who is praiseworthy. A God who not only do we see through the pages of the Scripture has been faithful, but a God who we have come to experience his faithfulness, his expressions of love. And they too, through Christ, can experience that. This little psalm puts priorities in order. It reminds us of what we are created to be. It shows us what we are called to do that deals with the two primary things fundamental to all of this life is relating to God in terms of worship and testifying to God through a mission. They are both encapsulated and very simple as we connect with God and are reminded of his love and faithfulness. And so the simple application I would put for all of us is simply this. Prize God, and you will praise God. Let me pray. Our Father, as we come this morning, I do thank you for this simple and yet profound word. And pray for those of us who are here that perhaps have forgotten the ways in which you have demonstrated your love and faithfulness, and pray that you would remind them not only of your faithfulness on the page of the Scripture, and in one sense, not even only of Christ, but all of the expressions that have flown into our lives because of him. And yet, let those things point us back to Christ who has our ultimate, ultimate provision. Lord, work in us an ability to see your great love and be reminded of it that the natural effect in our life would be to praise you. And we would praise you in the sanctuary, we would praise you among all peoples, and that nations and tribes would join us in the declaring of your praise. For Lord, you are worthy to receive it. And we find joy in doing what we were created to do. Bless us, Lord, by renewing our minds and freeing us to sing your praises. We pray all this in Christ. Amen.